Hi guys, welcome back to the What About podcast. We're back for the final episode of looking at the law given to Israel as part of our Redeemed Director's Cut series. The other episodes can be found wherever you get your podcast, or if you don't have a normal listening space, then check out our website. Over the past three episodes, we've been talking through the civil law and the ceremonial law, what they meant to the people of Israel and what they mean to us today. This episode, I'm really blessed to be joined by Cy Fry and Andy Level, and we're going to be chatting about the moral law. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Just to check, actually, do you go Andy or Andrew, or do you not mind? I don't mind. Andy or Andrew, it's fine. We'll cool. go for Andy today. Go for Andy today. Okay, yeah. so cool. I just realised I didn't check that, but I probably should have done. But that's all good. Well, do you want to kick us off, Andy, and introduce yourself? Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm Andy, and I'm married to Priscilla. I have two children, April and Jay. And uh, by trade, I'm a furniture maker. I've been at Christchurch now for about four years, I think. So, yeah, loving it here. It's great. Amazing. Sorry. Yeah, I'm Sai, uh, married to Anna and have four children. And yeah, I've been at Christchurch now for seven years. I have the privilege of leading the team here and yeah, really, really enjoying life at Helsham. I think I've, I think it's my third one of these that I've done. Yeah, possibly third. Possibly, yeah. Maybe only two. Who knows? No, no, no. I think, <laughs> no, I think you might be right in third. You did Wars and Rumours of Wars and then, oh no, I think you may have done more than that. I think you may have done this, maybe a fourth. There you go. An old hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Clearly the other three were so interesting. I remember all of them. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Amazing. We're just going to kick off as we have done for the last couple, because I know there may be people listening in who haven't listened to the first two, by just asking very simply, what is the law? When we look at Old Testament law, what does that mean? When we then go in to talk about moral law, let's start with the basis of what actually is the law in, in the first place. Who wants to kick us off and grab that first? So it looks like he really wants to go first. So. <laughs> sure, I'll go first this time. You can do the next question then. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, I mean, firstly, uh, the law normally is like a legal requirement within, within a land on its citizens. So when we're talking about the law within the Bible. Actually, it's used in different ways. Sometimes it's even used to refer to the whole Old Testament. But more specifically, it's usually used for the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, uh, known as the Torah or the Pentateuch. And But can even be broken down further, if you like, to, uh, looking at the, the, the Ten Commandments, maybe uh, considered part of the law. You get the what they call the theologians call the Book of the Covenant, which is Exodus twenty two, no twenty to twenty three, and then you obviously got the Book of Leviticus and the Book of Deuteronomy. So, but even saying that, then there's bits in Numbers where there's some you know laws given. So usually it refers to the first five books of the Bible. Amazing. Anything to add, Andy, on that? No, I think you've covered it all. All I would say is. Um... It's, I see the law as just something that distinct, helps us dis- distinguish between right and wrong, between good and evil. That's a, that's a simple <laughs> way of looking at what the law is. Amazing. And, and, and why does God give that law to his people, Andy? What, what, why did he give it specifically to Israel? God gave his, <laughs> his law specifically to the people of Israel because they were his special people. They were his, um, and because they were his special people, he wanted them to be distinct from the rest of the world and you see some of the laws some of the laws seem a bit strange like how you keep your beard you know and they were told to have beards and when you look at the other nations around them they were mostly like the egyptians they would have shaved their heads and that kind of thing so it, even something like the, the, the way they had their hair it made them distinct from the nations around them and that's just one example of, of that 
But God wanted them to be holy people, special people. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that, obviously, as Andy has rightly pointed out, that the law was given to the people of Israel to help mark them out. And looking at it from the perspective where we are now in the in the New Testament, we realise that the law was also given, because Galatians three twenty one to 28 makes it clear to us, it was given to lead uh, us to Christ, to lead them to Christ. And then uh, obviously they didn't have Christ then, but it was to help highlight to them their need for a saviour. Obviously this side of the new covenant when Jesus has come, we can see that more clearly. But for them, in as they were trying to, to follow it, there it helped reveal more and more of God's character. In fact, I found something Calvin wrote on it that I'll just read to you because I came across it in uh, his institutes. He had a chapter on, on the moral law. So I thought, oh, quick, that, that, that is good. I'll read that. That, that might help me in, the, in this interview. And he says, the law was committed to writing in order that it might teach more fully and perfectly the knowledge both of God and ourselves, which the law of nature teaches meagerly and obscurely putting it in there uh, it's great it's great stuff there isn't it and he talks about how it helps furnish our knowledge of god it helps furnish our knowledge of ourselves it helps us know how we can be more acceptable to god or helps the israelites know how they could be more acceptable to god in answering your particular question at, at the moment and also how it highlights that, that it it because it, for example, in the Ten Commandments, it starts by some of the things we do, but finishes by even attitudes of our hearts as well. So it looks at the a sort of a point towards an inward and spiritual righteousness as well. So all these things were given to Israel to help them realize realize more about God, reveal more about God and His ways, and help them to live in a way that would would please Him more. Mm. Amazing. And over the last of the two podcasts, specifically when we're looking at the ceremonial law, I think it really comes out in that development of the law to show the necessity of a savior, the necessity of Christ through his people trying to aspire to holiness. God's people are trying to aspire to the holiness that he commands of them because of who he is. There being a yeah, sort of as the law progresses, that highlighting of just the high standards that God has to have to be himself and how they're meant to live, pointing to that. That's amazing, wonderful. Cool. Moral law. We've spoken about civil and ceremonial over the last little while. We're going to focus a bit more on, on moral law today. Let's start with a simple one. What What is moral law? What is What does it mean for God to give his people moral law? And what does it mean for us reading in the Bible, reading through scripture to say, well, this is not just something of how a society works or sacrifices and things like that. This is this is a moral standard by which we live. Shall I? Yeah, I'll begin. Then. I think it's obviously morals and a guide what we see as right and wrong and how, how we live. I think it's quite helpful to, whilst I actually do think it is helpful to look at the law sometimes as moral, civil and ceremonial, there is some debate there amongst other th- sort of theologians, I say other, I'm not a theologian, amongst theologians, <laughs> that sometimes that actually all the laws for for instance for Israel were a moral law for them because they were God God's commands to them and therefore they had to obey them and so and actually sometimes it's it's difficult to define what what particular command is a, a moral command and what 
what isn't. However, I do think for us, it, 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 is, it is a useful exercise to, to, to look at them like that in the sense of moral laws. And uh, I think the Ten Commandments would obviously be the, you know, the, the starting place, sometimes known as the Ten Words. And I think that they, what's important to understand about the Ten Commandments is that they are, they're not given like British laws, if you like, or European laws are given where where there you know every eventuality is included in it they're, they're principles that are that are there that actually local elders or judges in, in in a setting would would use to help them decide you know information so that's probably the if you like the best starting place is to look at them because they that they uh, give us the sort of basis if you like of morality which a lot of Western civilizations have been built on. And actually, some of the other laws that you see in the Bible build on that. So, for example, commandment not to commit adultery. Well, actually, there's a lot of talk about how it's not really just referring to adultery, it's referring to sexual immorality as well. And what is that? And there's other laws in, in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy that help explain what what is not permissible in in terms of of sexual relations or for example the other, the law about murdering we shouldn't murder well what about if you accidentally murder somebody or something like that there's again there's other there's some other laws that you find in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy that help you understand what you do if that if someone has you know swung an axe and the head flew off and it, it kills somebody accidentally so I think probably the, the best starting place in terms of, of moral laws is to look at the, the Ten Commandments in terms of what what is relevant to, to us, but see them as principles rather than as trying to encapsulate everything and then work out from the other laws, do, do they relate into that or do they help our understanding of that? Yeah, I, sorry, just quickly, yeah, for anyone who's listening and who has, in whilst we started the series, tried to then read through the law, as I said, and, and sort of gone, well, is this civil? Is this only civil? Is this only ceremonial, moral, etc.? I think that's a very good clarification there, that actually most of the law given to Israel will have almost like a Venn diagram, will sit somewhere between the three, yes. and will have principles of all three within. There are some that are slightly more specific, but no, that's a, a very good clarification. Thank you for highlighting that's, that. You, you just triggered something, actually, by saying that Venn diagram, there's something that they call the ethical triangle where yes, you've got yeah. God at the top, then you've got Israel, and then you've got the land. And for, for Israel, because it's all an ethical issue, if it's relating to God, it's a theological issue. If it's relating to the, the, themselves, it's a sort of social issue. And if it's relating to the land, it's kind of an economic issue as well. So in one sense, for all for them, all of it was, as I say, moral. But for us, we I, I think... I would certainly say the Ten Commandments, if you like, are the key that we go through to look for what, what are the morals that apply to us. Actually, one, one more thing to, to add to that reason why I, I feel like you can mention the, the, the Ten Commandments. I mean, the New Testament picks up on mm. them as well. So you've got, for example, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, in verses 5 to 8, sort of lists, sort of says that the law is useful if, if used properly. And then he sort of lists a series of sins, basically. And ba- he's effectively going through the Ten Commandments. He kind of sums up the first four commandments in, I think, what does he say? He says, I've got it. I've got it here. He says, in lawlessness and disobedience for the ungodly 
and sinners. And then he goes on to talk about for those who strike their fathers and mothers. So, you know, coming on to that commandment for the murderers, sexually immoral uh, and so on and so forth. So he's clearly using Mm. the Ten Commandments as a point of reference for himself there. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And the that. God's moral standard obviously doesn't change. Um, yes. God's morality is constant and objective. It's not like our sort of subjective cultural morals that that shift and, and, and change. So when you look at God throughout his His word, that relationship between... It's, it's Chris Wright, isn't it, who does the God, his people and, and the land, doesn't he? Mm. Because in the mission of God, he speaks about that and that being a structure that runs throughout scripture in, in Eden. You see, obviously, God, his people, Adam and Eve and the land being Eden all the way to the ends of the earth, God and his people being the church and everyone. Yeah. And throughout that, God having the same moral principles that are being reflected throughout all the on to that bit later Andy. yeah worth mentioning the um the moral laws i think of the ten commandments mainly when you think of the moral laws and how they're they're wonderfully divided into four and six so you've got the first four how we treat god and then the the last six how we treat one another that's encapsulated in that verse love the lord your god with all your heart with all your mind and with mm. all your strength yeah. that's the first four and then love your brother as yourself mm. that's the, the last six yeah amazing yes yeah that sense of jesus coming to fulfill the law and to put that forward in the new covenant not just not to what's the phrase i've not come to dissolve the law but to fulfill, uh, it. fulfill it that's it yeah amazing well, why does god give a, a moral standard for us to live by well god gives us a moral standard to live to because that's the standard he lives to that's his when we look at the law we see something of the holiness of god we see what he is like so he expects the same standard from us. After all, we're made in his image. So I would say that would be the reason for that. Yeah, I think that's good. As it says in 1 Peter 1, be holy because I'm holy. He's, he's encouraging us to stand up to, or live up to a standard that he that he himself lives by. It's not like the Greek idea of gods who they had things on 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 you, but they themselves lived this you know wild sort of decadent life. Whereas we're called to imitate our God. We're made in His image, and what we would have once done naturally in the Garden of Eden when we were perfect we now can only do supernaturally through the spirit's help enabling us to to live like that but of course the law was given to highlight well this is these are some of the ways that god wants you to live this is a standard you want to live by summed up as andy said a moment ago as loving the lord your god with all your heart mind and soul and loving your neighbor as yourself Mm. and adam and eve those principles of the Ten Commandments look as a part of their life in the way that you said the Ten Commandments are principles which then the later laws then maybe extrapolate out and give specifics into certain situations and how you reflect those principles of the Ten Commandments in practice day to day. Adam and Eve didn't need those specifics because the principles, they lived perfectly yes. before they sinned. We, we have the question, where do we first see the law? We do see that before the Ten Commandments were given. So if you were to look in the writings of the Bible that were written before Exodus 20, so that'd be Genesis, the first few chapters of, the first 19 chapters of Exodus and the book of Job, you can see outlived every single one of the Ten Commandments. People knew that they were the difference between right and wrong. 
and there, there's some brilliant examples of that. So you could, I could, if I just do a few examples, I'll pick a few out. Maybe we could talk about Joseph, who knew it was wrong to commit adultery with Potiphar's wife. And mm. He knew that was wrong. So he, before the commands had been given, he knew the difference between right and wrong. Mm. And there's a great, there's a great bit in regarding using God's name in in a wrong way. We can read about where. Job's wife says to Job, she says, curse God and die. I, mm. I always imagine that's what she sounds like. She says, curse God and die. And Job says something along the lines of, he says, I will not curse God with my mouth. Therefore, mm. I have not sinned. So he understood that using God's name in the wrong way was, was sinful. And I, I could go through all of the Ten Commandments. There's numerous examples of every single one of those like that from those books. I suppose that there's something in that that really reminds me of when you look at Hebrews and you think about men and women whose faith is counted to them as righteousness because their lives reflect a relationship with God. There's an understanding of who God is, what his ways are, what his, I don't want to say what his morals are, because although I will within this context, I wouldn't normally use that term, what his character is and what he says is important and what should be done and shouldn't be done. All of those things, people such as Joseph and Job, who honor God and are close to him and have that relationship those things that explicitly are needed to say to Israel in the law are known to them because they know God in a personal way yeah yeah, yeah I read from Genesis 26 this is verse second half of verse 4 and verse 6 it says um I will give them these lands so, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements and my commands and my decrees, turn the page, and my laws. And so you see there, right back in Genesis, God's talking about his decrees and his laws mm. to Abraham. Mm. Yeah, I suppose the, the law is in its most simple term. If you look at the law being in terms of the, with the five books, it's God relating to his people and his expectations of his people if they are going to be his people. And so when Abraham has that covenant that is made with him, when Noah have those covenants, because that's the thing, covenant is an agreement. It's not just a one-sided thing. It's mm. not just God saying, I will do these things for you. It's you are going to be my people and I will be your God, which he explicitly then says to Israel. But he says to Abraham and Noah and those guys through the covenant that he makes with them, there's an expectation for them to uphold God's laws and principles, even if they haven't been written down on a stone tablet yet. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good point. I mean, I think it's also worth emphasizing with that is that, yes, there is a God is expecting a response from his people. But like with when he gave the... Ten Commandments. He had rescued them out of Egypt mm. first, so yes. he had he had saved them by grace, if you like, even in the Old Testament. And then he sort of says, "Right, so this is kind of my expectations of you, um, and and you need now to to live in it." And like with, with Christ, we've been saved by grace. We're saved by His love for God so loved the world, and you know we love Him because He first loved us. But Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my commands. So because of that love, because we've received that grace, it should now work out in obedience. And you even see that mirrored in the Old Testament. It's not that the Old Testament is uh, salvation by works and, uh, and the New Testament is salvation by grace. No, it's actually salvation by grace but then it's ex that's expressed in works of the law uh, by the israelites and for us it's expressed in living obediently to christ although the difference i suppose within that is that the law isn't given to the israelites isn't meant to just be their 
the moral standing by which they live, it's also meant to point to them that they can't do it by yes, themselves. Yeah. And so unlike, so, you know, I, I love you said that with, with salvation and, and when covenant is formed, firstly, it always has to be God extending his hand. It can't be us. We're not just deciding salvation. It is God who extends his hand to us and we reach out and we grab him, but it is purely on his side. But then that life that we live afterwards, which we see as Christians through sanctification, is the same life that God is showing to his people can only be lived through him, through the power of his spirit. But in the Old Testament, obviously, a very different. Yeah, yeah quite, because the, the gospel it can't be understood as good news until you understand the bad news that we can't keep the law. And maybe a good illustration of this, which I'd use as an illustration, is when the, when the Israelites were trapped on the beach and Pharaoh came with his army and, and Pharaoh said, look, they're, they're, they're hemmed in by the wilderness and they were trapped on this beach. And they, they really only had three options. They, they could either try and fight their way off the beach, they could try and climb their way out and run across the wilderness, or they could swim. But if you think of those as, as an illustration of the law and look at each of those options as the law, you see how helpless they were. Because you, you can't fight the law. Some people try and they, maybe you could talk about people who make up their own laws and then judge God by them and they try and, you know, try and fight the law, that's not going to get you anywhere. It's futile. You might find those who try and escape from the law, try and run away, climb, climb over the rocks and go into the wilderness. But the trouble is, if you run away from the law, you're also running away from God. So that's what atheists do. And um, that's not going to get you anywhere. But maybe, maybe the most noble of the three options would be to try and keep the law. And that would be like somebody who decides they're going to try and swim and keep their head above water. But that too is futile. It's, it's noble because it's, it's the right direction. That's the, you know, across the Red Sea was the direction of the promised land. But it's still, you're not going to make it. It's, it's a futile thing. And so that's where everybody needs to be at that place where those, those Israelites were on the beach, where they were absolutely without hope, absolutely trapped. And maybe that's one of the things that the law does that's, that's useful, is that it, it shows us that we are absolutely doomed. And it was at that point, where they were at that point, that the Red Sea opened up for them and they could, could uh, see God's grace and walk through on dry land. And in, in, in that analogy, I suppose, Moses is that sort of Christophany in that situation, yeah, quite, yeah, isn't he? Yeah. He's that Christ-like figure who in faith steps out as representative of his people and, yeah. and, and God then moves. And as you can imagine, as they went through the Red Sea, they would have seen something of just the, the enormity of it. As you can imagine, as they got to the middle and they would have, when they looked up, they must have seen like a skyscraper of water above them. And maybe that is a good analogy of just how, how big the law is. We can't keep it. But thanks, thanks be to God, he sent his son. So, uh, so we have grace. Um, we've now moved a little bit. The conversation moved on quite nicely, actually, into speaking about Christ and the new covenant in which we have in him. What does that look like for us? What do these moral laws and principles look like for us who are in Christ? We've touched it a little bit, but let's just drill down on that a little bit more. What does it look like for us who are in Christ when we read these moral laws and principles? I um, found, a, again, in God's sovereignty, I found a good quote from John Stott. It happened to be when I was reading for my series on Thessalonians on there, and he, he talks about the moral moral law in there. And I thought, oh, that's good. I'll, 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 I'll highlight that. that and I'll <laughs> use it and make myself sound clever. But I was reading it for something else, actually. But Stott says this about Christians. He says, we are so busy preaching the gospel that we seldom teach the law. We are also afraid of being branded legalists. We are not under the law, 
we, we say piously, as if we are free to ignore and even disobey it. Whereas what Paul meant is that our acceptance before God is not due to be due to our observance of the law, as, as Andy was sort of giving that illustration a minute ago. But Christians are still under obligation to keep God's moral law and commandments. Indeed, the purpose of Christ's death was that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. And the purpose of the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts is that we might, that he might write God's law there. And it's picking up that wonderful scripture from Jeremiah 31, 31, where God says he'll write his law on our hearts and when you actually if you were to look at the, the the most famous sermon ever the sermon on on the mount as jesus teaching there considered to be by many almost like the the, the pinnacle of uh, a morality there actually what jesus is speaking about is a morality that comes right out from the heart it's where god has god has so changed us that, that, that our heart attitude is right before him so it's not just about you know committing adultery it's about not committing lust it's you know it's going right down to that level and um so as as Christians, there's a sense in which the Holy Spirit is there to help us to live out the the moral law of God, to live it in a way that pleases God, to put it another way, from, from our very heart. And when we fail to do that, which actually we all do every day, certainly in our thinking, sometimes in our speaking, and sadly sometimes in our, our actions as well, yeah, there's forgiveness, there, there's grace, we, we're still dependent on Jesus, we, we look to him, we ask for his forgiveness as 1 John, you know, 1 uh, makes it clear or the Lord's Prayer makes it clear to us for, for, you know, uh, to pray for our daily bread and then forgive us this day mm. our, uh, our sins. And um, so there's a sense of we, we can get forgiveness and fresh grace, but his spirit is there to help us to to keep the, the, the Ten Commandments in a way and to help us live in a way that pleases God. Yeah, yeah, quite. I think the Ten Commandments were on stone tablets outside of us, the cold mm. stone tablets. But now the law is inside of us, mm. written on our hearts. And so um, it's this wonderful thing that, that if we live a life of love, and, and we, we've been filled with the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you're filled with the Spirit, so you can live a life of love. What does that look like? Uh, well, first of all, you would not have any other gods before you because you love the God who saved us. And and, and, and secondly, you wouldn't have a graven image because, because we have God. He's wonderful. And why would you need one? And we'll, we'll keep, his, we'll keep his, his day holy because we love him and, and on and on. So you'll be keeping the, the Ten Commandments without trying to keep the Ten Commandments, if that makes sense. What, is the, what, what does a life of love look like? Well, it looks like the Ten Commandments. Mm. And really like that. when you look at the New Testament in terms of, so in Galatians, you look at the fruit of the Spirit as the fruit of the Spirit abide in you as you grow more like Christ and more like the character of Christ. Those things, those Ten Commandment principles are going to be in your life because it's what it looks like to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, yeah, self-control, etc. Yeah, et yeah I, I love what you said there about... Um, yeah, the, the stone tablets outside of the body and just that sense of the heart of stone being replaced by the heart of flesh. Yeah. And yeah, it's the heart of stone. And so those stone tablets are external, but it's the heart of flesh with God's spirit dwelling within that the now in the new covenant we see. It's be beautiful imagery. God is very good, isn't he? He, he knows exactly what he's doing. <laughs> he does. He does. He does. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've got another quote from Christopher Wright where he he talks about this issue as well and he says so while the christian is certainly no longer under the law 
quotes Romans 3, 19 and 6, 14, is bound by the law of the old covenant. He is nevertheless not without the law. He quotes 1 Corinthians 9, 21, as though it has nothing what, uh, whatever to say to him. Rather, the power of the indwelling spirit, which is what, what we've been talking about, makes it possible that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who live according to the Spirit's power. And he's quoting Romans uh, 8, 4 there. And he goes on to say, uh, you mentioned about the fruit of the Spirit, and the principal fruit of the Spirit is love, which is the fulfilling of the law, especially the commandments. And he quoted what you mentioned earlier, Andy, about loving God fully and loving our neighbour as ourselves. And that's the fulfilment of the the Ten, Ten Commandments. So, uh, yeah, it, God, God does know what he's doing. He's given us a spirit so that we, again, begin to, I suppose now supernaturally through the spirit, do what we, what, what we would have done naturally before the, before the fall in uh, Genesis 3. Yeah, amazing. I just want to uh, move us on if that's all right. Obviously, the last two podcasts we've done we've looked at when we looked at the civil law there's a sense in which we said you know we don't live in a theocracy anymore we're not looking to push for a theocracy so those civil sections to a certain extent aren't applying to us in the same way today ceremonially jesus is our great high priest we're not making sacrifices in the same way and so there is a real difference there but when we look at the moral law it's a very different outlook and it's a very different situation but i've got just some of the law the civil laws that also reveal the moral law of god i've just got a few of these and and obviously as i read some of these through you know you may be listening on the podcast and thinking you know oh oh, obviously you know some of those are not good things but there may be other ones that actually you're thinking oh that's not a big deal anymore murder striking or cursing a parent kidnapping sorcery and witchcraft bestiality working on the sabbath incest human sacrifice adultery homosexual acts blasphemy false prophecy and there may be some of those that actually you think oh well we we can't say that those things are morally against god's law can we isn't that just legalistic and as christians under grace how do we walk in truth without being seen as either legalistic or lax it's a very good question yeah I can give, an, I can give a, a nice illustration. I don't know if it answers your question, but it's a nice illustration. We'll see. We'll, see. we'll go from there. So we'll go from there. And it's, it's, it goes like this. There was, there was once a, a, a man, a rich man, and, and he hired a maid to work in his house. And he, he put this list up on the wall with 10 rules, things he had to do. So he's like, make, make my breakfast, make sure my dinner's ready, keep my shoes tidy. You know, there's all sorts of things. I don't know what they were. I'm sort of making it up on the spot here. But there's 10 rules that she had to keep. And if she didn't keep them, maybe she'd get sacked or something. I'm not sure. But um, after a time, this man, he fell in love with this maid and he married her. One of the first things he did was to take the list off the wall. He said, you're my wife now, so I'm taking this, this, this list off the wall. But yet she still did all those things, but not out of a sense of duty, but she did them out of a sense of love. She, she loved to cook him dinner. She loved cooking his breakfast. She loved making sure his clothes were tidy and, and whatever it was on the list. And so that is sort of a nice illustration of how we should react to the law, that we're not bound by it anymore, but we are, we keep them out of love. And I don't know if that answers your question. but yeah, no, it's, it's, <laughs> it's it's a really great start, really, really yeah, good. It's yeah. a good it's I like the good illustration point. a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think, I think, 
I think reminding ourselves that we are under grace is is important, keeping that in our thinking. But grace doesn't mean that men can ignore the law and we're free to sin. It means that when we fall into sin, which we all do, we can, we can be forgiven. The only person who ever fully kept the law is Christ. And so we need to keep looking to him for our salvation as well as looking to him as our example. And I think there's a there's, that, that, that's a kind of helpful balance to have, that he's, he's our saviour, the one who fully did it, but he's also our example that we're trying to, to copy. And we, uh, we need to try and live for God and try and please him by faith. And actually, Paul picks up in Romans 9, verses 30 to 32, that the Israelites, they, they, they failed because they didn't try to do, keep the law by faith. They thought it was based on their works and we can't please God by our works. It's supposed to be by faith. So I think if you keep that in mind of, of, of grace, of, of, of Christ and of faith, that will help you as you try and live for God. We are called to try and please him. We are called to, there's things that sometimes that we naturally want to do that we know the Bible says is wrong and that we have to stop ourselves doing it. I mean, just, just a, a, an everyday example. We all, you know, we, we all have that little, little bit of gossip or even sometimes to when you know someone's done something that's a, a bit bad, you want to, you know, you want to tell people about it because it makes you feel, really, what you're doing is because it makes you feel better about yourself. You think, oh, well, I wouldn't do that really uh, or I'm a better person than them is what you're really saying by telling them, even if you're just telling people for prayer purposes, which sometimes yeah. Yeah. <laughs> people get around that oh it's just for prayer so you know but really you just want to tell them this juicy bit of gossip and so there's things that we naturally sometimes want to do that we know the bible makes it clear we shouldn't do and we have to say no i'm, I'm going to put that part of my sinful nature to, to death because to death, i'm trusting you god and, and when we don't and we realize we haven't we 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 come to god for forgiveness but we are also to in faith strive to try and do these things so they don't always come naturally, but actually the spirit does. The more we do that, the spirit doesn't actually change our nature. I can give you a, a personal example. So when I was a teenager and I wasn't living for God, I, I used to steal things. I steal things from shops, steal things from my employer. You know, if I thought I could get away with it, I, I would steal. And when I became a Christian, I went with some of the people I stole from and I went and put things right with them. But that desire, when I thought I could get away, it was still there. I didn't actually act upon it, but it was still there, sort of, you know, uh, festering away because that's the way I trained my brain. That's the way the sinful nature worked. And I had to resist that. Fast forward, I think it was about 15 years or it might even been slightly less than that. And it's when I was in Southampton. I, I moved there to help do a church plant. I was in Asda. And it's not long after that you you know you get the cash back from machines. And then they had the self-service machines came out. And uh, so you could put your card in there and get cash back. Well, a lady in front of me had done that and, and drawn out about 50, 50 pounds worth of cash, but forgot it and walked out. And I walked up, didn't, didn't notice, walked up and then the machine was beeping at me. I thought, why is it beeping? I looked down and there was a lot of money there. And quick as a flash, the thought came into my mind, well, oh, you could take that, she's gone. But what actually pleased me was because the, the Holy Spirit had so worked on my character that that thought that popped into my mind was repulsive to me. Yeah. Whereas once it would have been like, oh yeah, I could, or, or no, I shouldn't. It was actually, oh no, why is her money? And I, I and thankfully she sort of walked around past me and I said, excuse me, have you forgotten something? And she's like, oh, thank you so much. But that's the, uh, an example of the spirit changing you. Whereas once 
I uh, had to sort of fight against that. Now, then naturally, or supernaturally through his help, he's changed my character to be more in line with God's. Yeah, that's where in the, in the Old Testament we had the law uh, to, to show us the difference between good and bad. But in the New Testament, we have the example of Christ. Mm. It, it kind of goes up a notch. It's even, you know, to live up to that he, he lived it out. And we have that wonderful example that he gave us. I love that sense of that it's not just God saying, I know that this is going to um, not make sense to you and it's not going to be good, but this is what you really, you really need to do. That sense of the spirit had worked on you, changed your heart to the point in which you were like, actually, no, this is not right. This is not yeah. what I want. And I definitely have, have seen that in, in my own life. And I think about there are sort of things on that list that I read and I know people, so for instance, you know, we look at the whole area of sort of same-sex attraction and, and, and homosexual acts. And I know men and women who say, actually, God's law and God's desire for sex is within biblical marriage between man, one man and one woman. And so because of that, just because I feel X or Y, I submit those feelings, you know, underneath God's desires because I know that his desires are better. And over time, just that sense of freedom and joy as God has blessed them through that, you know, think about Vaughan Roberts and, and, and people like yeah. that who sort of speak of that joy and salvation that they have, even though they've laid down those things that society says, oh, well, you can't give up that. In the same way, there are, there are other things in the law. We say, actually, God is better. God's views are better. God's heart is better. And so we, we lay those down. And over time, God works in our hearts and he brings a greater joy and desire out of us than would ever have happened through those other areas. Yeah, it's very, it's very good. And I think it highlights the fact that actually our greatest value, if you like, as humans, is that we're made in the image of God, that his value is, is, is placed on us. And I think so often society gets confused when it places other things. Oh, no, you need to find your identity in your sexuality. You need to find your identity in your wealth. You need to find your identity in whatever it is, your success or power. Or And actually... We're chiefly designed, made physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually to find our identity in God. That is the ultimate. And when we do that and we align ourselves with his ways, that is when we will experience the ultimate joy, I suppose, ultimate freedom. And also experience his blessing and joy upon our lives on top of that. Mm. The joy of Christ is better than the joy of the 50 pounds. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. Wonderful. Amazing. So when we're reading and coming across passages like this as Christians, as in in the New Covenant, but we go back to the Old Testament, you know, we're doing a devotion or part of our quiet time and we're reading law that is given to us. What is a good method to practically sit down and when you come across it to read this and go, what am I taking from this? What doesn't apply? What, how are we doing that? I suppose we see if it was something cultural or or not we could but we, there's always a, the principle that we can we can draw out of it well the new testament has the whole thing about women covering their heads and should women wear a, a head covering to church and um i think that was cultural to the time and that would be today today it would be something like you wouldn't you wouldn't go to for women wouldn't go to church wearing a bikini because that would be a distraction to the men and that was the same reason that women covered their heads in in the New Testament. So that might be just one example of, of something where you, you take the principle of it and uh, we apply it to ourselves from that. 
there's you know a simple way uh, of you know looking at any bible passage is you know saying oh, uh, what does it say and in that you're trying to consider what it says from the original audience what does it mean and how do i apply it to myself and that that's you know that, that's all well and good uh, a slightly more detailed one and particularly I, I find that when i came across this i found it very helpful when you're dealing with old testament passages and particularly old testament law and that is found in well-known book grasping god's word and uh it's a sort of five-step process when you're in in the old testament there's only four if you're in the new but it's five steps so it's, it's talking about looking at it's answering that first question away what does it say you look at grasping the text in in its own situation in its own cultural setting and then secondly you're sort of looking at okay well that was that culture what's the difference between that culture um, and our culture so you're considering some of those differences that you know you mentioned there Andy about a sort of head covering or if you're in the Old Testament you know sowing in your fields and that 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 sort of thing then you look at pulling out what they call the principalizing bridge what are the principles and principles have to be applicable to everybody they're universal they're they're timeless meaning so some of the as we've mentioned already some of the laws are limited to, to Israel so you're you're looking at is there a principle that that applies and then you're looking at does the new testament modify that teaching at all so you're trying to think of what's my understanding of other bible passages and we should do this anyway um you there's a, there's a wonderful saying that you interpret what is unclear in the bible by what is clear why where there's when you come across a verse you think well that's a bit of an odd verse you don't just suddenly base your thinking on that for example where's a there's a passage in the new testament that talks about being baptized on behalf of the dead where you think that seems so well, well you don't we, we don't start baptizing people on behalf of the dead because of that one verse we interpret it by the other verses that that are clear and that helps us modify our understanding of it and particularly when you're old the old testament you're saying does the new testament modify this teaching and then you're looking at how can you apply it to us so for example the old testament in the in the in the law it talks about moses writes about giving a certificate of divorce and so you you can look at that and but then when you come to the new testament you find that jesus modifies that teaching of divorce and he says moses gave it to you because of your hardness of heart and so we would go what jesus says because he's he's modified that and apply that principle to our lives there's likewise you know a, a, adultery the, the commandment that tells us not to commit adultery whereas jesus takes it up a notch and talks about not lusting from your heart so that you can see you can see it there on those things where the new testament modifies it so to use another example of one which is slightly more ambiguous maybe you get those passages in Deuteronomy where it talks about not sowing in your field two types of seed or not wearing clothes that are made of uh, you know two types of material where you you know you look at that thing well okay well, actually most of my clothes are made of a mixture of polyester <laughs> and cotton you know so am I breaking that uh, commandment well you know you look at that in their setting and as Andy uh, rightly pointed out earlier a lot of the laws were given to make Israel distinct it was about that you know that we're being separate for God and so God was through those laws helping them to realize no that we're called to be a separate people we're not called to mix that's that's part of the principle that he was pulling out for them there the new testament does help modify that because one 
the in Acts 15 it talks of you know that we're no longer under those those commands uh, of the law we don't need to we don't need to feel that so we're we're free to wear clothes what we like so how do we apply that to us to that so where the principle coming out of that is that God was trying to teach the Israelites about being holy therefore we're called to be holy we're called to be single-minded if you like for God James talks about not being double-minded but we're called to be single focus for God so those five steps I find very helpful looking at you know grasping the text in its own town looking at the distance between what was happening there and our own culture so at least recognizing the differences then trying to draw out principles that are timeless that are universal universal applicable to us does the new testament modify any of these teachings and then looking at how it applies to us mm. i think it's very important that those last you don't just get to number three and stop i think that's that's often the the fear that through reading things like grasping god's word beforehand just that fear of getting to number three going cool we've got our principalizing bridge i've got a principle now oh yes, it'd be good to live by that principle and you stop. Yes. Um, and actually in doing so, you turn beatitudes into platitudes. Yes. And it's a nice sort of feeling, but you don't have that sort of, that, those next steps. And I think that it's, that's where principle, if you, well, I suppose I'd call principalism is not always safe unless you do that next step of, well, you know, is that something that's carried forth into the New Testament? Is that something that Jesus speaks specifically on? If so, then you know mm. that's what we're going to. When there's more of an explicit nature there, and making sure that whenever you do that sort of theology, it's it's biblical theology, so it's surrounded by other verses. You're packing it with with truth at all times, so you're not just taking ethereal concepts and trying to read them through the lens of our culture. It's yes. through biblical culture at all times. Amazing. Wonderful. Any other thoughts before we, we close? I shall I read a poem which I think encapsulates everything. It's quite a well-known one. It, it says this. To run and work the law commands, but gives us neither feet or arms. Better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. I think that's just rather beautiful. You know, the law it beckoned us so that we had to go to it. But the, the gospel comes to us. I think that's rather wonderful. So, yeah. And it gives us the means to, to do what, what the law demands, but couldn't, we, we couldn't. But even fear. better, because it gives us wings yeah. as opposed to arms and legs. Amazing. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for, for joining me. Thank you for giving up your time. It's great, as always, to chat through these things. And hopefully you've enjoyed listening to our conversation today. If you'd like to listen to the other two, if you haven't already listened to them, then check them out on our website. And we will be back next month. Have a great one and God bless. <laughs>